This morning we're going to continue our study in, in Galatians and I am, I am really excited church. I have no idea how to explain it to you. I was so excited I had to apologize to Melanie this morning because I was just meditating and going through and adding points to my sermon and then uh, Melanie came in and I had this big grin on my face and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm just happy, I don't know. I, just, I was one step away from dancing on the table I guess, I don't know. But God's word brings life to our lives. Remind yourself, tell yourself, this is God's word. It brings life to me. Now that doesn't happen, and I'll be honest, it doesn't happen every time I read the Bible. I don't get so excited and pumped up. It's natural. But when God takes his word and brings it alive in your heart, you cannot contain it. I'm really excited. I know I've been meditating on Galatians for a while, and, but I just got so excited this morning again. Well, last night and the day before that, I don't know. I'm just excited because God's word brings life. And I pray that as you, again, I'm, I don't have a specific outline. We're just going through this, through this book, and I trust that God will take what he wants you to hear and apply it to your life. Verse 4 may be great for one person. Verse 5 may be great for one person. Verse 6 may go apply to someone else. But that is God's word. And he will speak to you when you open your ears and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to your heart. And I trust you do that this morning. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. And um, I know Pastor Chandler went through the first few verses there. Verses 6 through 9, and you see the biggest issue as we've overviewed the book of Galatians, the biggest issue that Paul, one of, one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue, is that the gospel that he has preached, that he has received, there's some other guys coming in and adding things to that gospel. And if you know the tone, again, remember the tone of Galatians, he's kind of Mad a little, not with the people in Galatians, but he's mad at these people who are coming and adding to the gospel of Christ. But he's also kind of uh, encouraging, really. It's not like, again, like, uh, like I, I described, it's not like, oh, come on, let's go. No, he said, come on, let's go. It's a strong kind of encouragement. How quickly you have forgotten what the real gospel is. And so you see the first uh, few verses where he introduces himself and then we come to Verse 6, if you have uh, a sub, what do you call it, a superscription, a title for that passage, he basically talks about no other gospel, and that's the emphasis right there. And he pronounces this curse. If anyone preaches a gospel, whether it be an angel or any other man, or me, even me, myself, come back and preach to you another gospel, let him be cursed. That's strong language, church. There's no compromising when it comes to the gospel of Christ. If anyone preaches another gospel, they will incur, he's simply saying, they will incur the wrath of God. And then he comes to verse 10, and now you understand what he's saying. He says just now in 6 through 9, he says, anyone preaches another gospel, God is going to, I mean, they will face the wrath of God. And then in verse 10, read with me, he says, what, so what do you think now? When I know that if I preach another gospel and incur the wrath of God, would I please man or make God angry with me? Would I rather please God 
and make man angry? That's his question. Should I obey God and make man mad or should I obey man and make God mad at me? And obviously from the previous question he says, no, I don't want that curse. And then he says, keeps going in that uh, verse 10, focusing on verse 10. Or am I trying to please people? Am I trying to please man? And he says, if I, the last part of verse 10, if I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I would not be a servant of Christ. And that's a very important word that Paul uses there. It's the word uh, servant is the word in Greek. It's, it's called doulos, which is a very important word because that word gives him the authority in a sense. That's the word that gives him the authority as such. A doulos is someone who lived to serve and bring honor to his master and his master alone. A doulos, a servant. There is one purpose for him. That purpose is to bring honor to his master. And he says, if I am a servant of God, my whole sole purpose is to bring honor to God. Why would I serve man? How can I serve man? It doesn't make sense. But realize that this word servant, again, like I said, gives him authority because, now think with me, how does a servant have authority, really? It kind of is different, right? You don't expect a servant to have a position of honor. But if you read the same word, if you read the Septuagint, the Septuagint, if you know, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament back in 200, around 200 BC, when they translated the Old Testament to Greek, they used this word doulos, to describe the prophets, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. That's the word they used to describe a prophet. The prophet was a servant of God. So it was the word was a title of high honor to be called a servant of God. And he's using the same exact word. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. They were all servants of God and they were never, if you know anything about the prophets, they were never interested in pleasing man. Not once do you see them trying to make people happy. They only cared, and if I can say, were passionate about serving God and pleasing God alone. They did not care about what people thought about him because they were sold out for God. Sold out for God. And Paul is very deliberately using this word. Calling on that same kind of authority. Just as the prophets were servant of God. I am the servant of Christ. Just as the prophets were sold out for God. I am sold out for Christ. Just as the prophets cared about only about pleasing God. I care only about pleasing Christ. Men do not matter. Why would I compromise the gospel? Like I said, he's very deliberate choosing his word here. And we need to understand the intensity with which he's using this word here. Understand, Paul probably knew the Old Testament better than anybody else. Anybody around his time, and he actually says that later on. And he's purposely, very purposely bringing up this imagery of the Old Testament prophets. And why do we say that? Because later on he quotes the prophets really. He uses them a little later. Paul, a servant, he said, I am a servant of Christ and I need to pause here and interject. 
Daniel, a servant of God. Jeremiah, a servant of God. Abraham, a servant of God. Jeremiah, a servant of God. Paul, a servant of God. Now put your name in there. You are a servant of God. Now let that sink in because that's what we are called to. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, hey, you are a servant of God. They need to know that. It's a position of honor. Though it is a weak and low position, it is a position of honor. You are, or we are called servants of God. We are called to be the salt. We are called to be the light. We are called to be, if I can use the phrase, the real influencers in the world. That's what we are called to do. Do we realize, do you realize the high calling God has placed on your life to be a servant of God, a servant of Christ, called to be sold out, totally set apart for Christ. We live to please God, not man. Do we do that in our everyday lives? Do we do that in our everyday lives? The people we interact with, whether at work, the friends we hang out with, wherever, the, our workplace, our, our home, people we run into the grocery store, whatever. Is it clear and evident that you live to please God and not please man? Is it clear for them? Not because you're proud of it, not because you're arrogant about it, not because you're a snob, but because they know for sure where you stand. And you stand on the convictions you find in the word of God and you are not willing to please man and compromise the word of God. But you're going to take a stand on God because all you want to do is please God and not man. Now we don't do this with arrogance, we don't do this with pride, and we don't do this with me so holy, you so unholy. But is it evident when you walk into the room, the conversation changes sometimes because they know you can't tolerate the rubbish that they're talking. When you walk into the room and you hang around them, they don't do what they normally do because they know, hey, you know, he's not good with that because his standard is the word of God. Again, we don't do this with a sense of pride or arrogance or anything of that sort. But my question as we go on to you is, is the fact that you are a servant of God, someone who's sold out totally to God, someone who is worried more about pleasing God than pleasing man. Do they know that? Again, I'm not, please understand me, I'm not saying rub it in their face at all. Don't be proud, don't be arrogant about it. But they need to know that you are all about the conviction that comes from God's word. It sets you apart. Sometimes, I was talking to Chandler about this. Sometimes I feel that we have become so much like the world. Let me say that again. Sometimes I feel we have become so much or too much like the world so that we don't offend the world. That we have lost what it means to be set apart and to be a servant of God. Let me put it this way. I don't want to be known as Sid. He's a religious guy. He goes to church every Sunday. I want to be known as Sid who lives the truth of God's word. 
Your friends, your people, the people around you don't need to know. The people at your workplace don't need to know that you're a religious person. They need to know that you live by the word of God. That's what it means to be a servant of God. Someone who's sold out. All he wants is to please God and not man. Let's keep going in verse. And so it's important to pick up that, that, verse in, uh, that word in verse 10, verse 11. Second thing I want to look at in verse 11 and 12. These two verses essentially lay the, if you can say, the foundation of this next section as such. And this next section actually is all the way from 1, 11, or, I mean 13, all the way to 2, 10, 2, 12, somewhere around there. I'm just going to go as much as I can go and then I'll stop. But I'm so excited to preach God's word. Amen. So these two basically set apart this, this whole or set up this whole section that is about to come. I want you to know, verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. Verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Again, like I said, these two verses are like in the middle. They lay the foundation of what's to come, but they also draw and connect what's been said before in verses 6 through 9. As you know, and we've talked about it the last two weeks, what is Paul's biggest concern? It has to do with the agitators that we use as the word in the, in the, in the church that have come into the church. And what is the problem? The gospel. The gospel is at stake. And if you look at verse 6 through 9, I don't know if you have it there, Nate. Oh, did you leave? Okay. Uh, verses 6 through 9. It says, I'm astonished. And if you read that, look at the number of times the word gospel is used in that, in that part. Concerns. His concern is what? What's his concern? That the Galatians, the church, is turning away from the gospel that Paul preached to them to another gospel that these agitators are teaching. So the word gospel is so central to what he's saying. And see the number of times it's repeated in that 6 through 9. It says, you know, they turn into a different gospel. That is not really any gospel. Then he says they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. You know, then again he said, come and preach a gospel. And then he keeps going. Verse 9, it says, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than. And so the word gospel is used time and time again because it's very central to his message. And you come to verse 11 and he says what? He's saying the same thing, but you got, you got it's an interesting play on words. And uh, I need you to get this because it's quite interesting actually. There's a play of words and you cannot translate that into English. You really cannot translate that into English without losing the emphasis Paul is putting on the real gospel. Because verse 11, it says, the gospel I preached, right? It says the gospel I preached. Now the word that he uses, the gospel I preach, the word he uses for gospel is evangelion, which is the Greek word. And the word that is translated I preach is also the same word which says gospel. It says evangelion, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I was looking up the Greek. It's the same word. So it's saying the gospel I gospelized you with. Yes, we, there's no way to say that because it doesn't make sense in English. So we say proclaim to preach. But a person reading it to the church in Galatians, he says, man, he's really about the truth of the gospel. Yeah. I didn't say the gospel. It's the gospel I gospelized with you. There is one and only one true gospel. That's what he's trying to say here in verse 11. Amen. 
the gospel. And it's an interesting, interesting play on words. Like I said, in the Greek, it just pops out. As soon as I read it, I was like, whoa, the gospel I gospelized with you. And so Paul's emphasis, again, is going back to the fact that there is one true gospel. Anything else is no gospel at all. Anything else is no gospel at all. Church, there is one and only one true gospel. The gospel that Jesus proclaimed was what? The kingdom of God has broken into the world. The essence of the gospel is the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And when you put your trust in that, you are saved. problem back then, and I know Chandler touched about it then, they're talking about the gospel and they were adding what you call Jewish identity markers. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to be following these laws. And they were adding that to the gospel. And Paul's saying, no, the gospel that I gospelized you with is simple. Christ died, rose again. By faith in him, you are saved. That's it. Accepting, you understand this, but accepting Jesus as your savior is basically accepting his death and his resurrection as payment for your sins. And that is what we call salvation. That is what the gospel is all about. Don't ever make it about Jesus and reading your Bible. Don't make it about Jesus and praying every day. Don't, go, don't make it about Jesus and going to church every Sunday. Don't make it about Jesus and paying your tithes. Jesus and stop drinking. Jesus and speaking in tongues. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's not add extra things to them. Yes, those things are good things that flow from our experience we have with Christ. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. Crucified and resurrected from the dead. That's why he's so passionate about it. Too many people complicate it. And I think nowadays in our church we simplify it way too much. The gospel is simple. Yes. It's the death and the resurrection of Christ. And that is what Paul is trying to say. There is and can only be one true gospel. That gospel which I preach to you. And he says that. Keep reading that verse. That gospel which I preach to you is not from human origin. That's a really powerful statement right there. I know a lot of us know what apologetics is, right? We're defending your faith and everything else. Some of us have studied it. I know Sam's really good at that. But I think this verse right there is probably, you realize, is one of the most important defenses of the gospel because the one true gospel is not from human origin. Is not from human origin. Which human, which human mind could have ever thought about the gospel? Think with me. No human mind could have ever come up with this gospel. Imagine with me, and I need you to think with me. Imagine you are a king, and you are a good king. Yet the people rebel against you, curse you out, tear you down, destroy everything that you have created, and ended up, end up destroying each other, and of course, at the end, end up destroying themselves. And now you are the king. How many of you would think, okay... I need to fix this. How am I going to fix this? I'm going to send my son there. Now they are going to reject him, beat him up, kill him. But three days later, I'm going to raise him from the dead. And then whenever, whoever trusts in him, I'm going to save. That's an utterly, I mean, absolutely ridiculous idea. No man could have ever thought about that idea. 
That's why it's the gospel has no human origin because it comes from the mind of God himself. It's not. I mean, it's just absurd. Which person could ever come up with such an idea to save the world? I mean, how many of you, if I decide, if I come and tell you that's my plan, how many of you say, great idea, go ahead, send your son. No. The gospel is ridiculous. That's why he says it's a stumbling block for the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. But for those who are being saved, it is what? The wisdom of God. Understand that. That's why I think a lot of people have a problem with the gospel because it's so ridiculous. But that's what makes it unique. That's what makes it from God and God alone. That's the gospel we're called to live by. It just blows. I mean, can you honestly think of one person who would think about a plan like that? I don't know. I can't. I don't know anyone who would have come up with that idea. That's why, like I said, that's why he says it's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. It sounds ridiculous to those who don't know, understand him. No man could have ever come up with such, such an idea. That's why Paul is saying, the gospel that I gospelized with you, uh, to you, or gospelized you, is not from human origin. Paul is establishing there can be only one true gospel. There can be only one true gospel. And then, of course, he's, it's, it's, he's connecting it again to what uh, all the way, the same theme is connected all the way. That it is not from man. It has nothing to do with man. All the way through 2, chapter 2, verses 10, he's basically talking about the same thing. That the gospel I preach to you has, is not from human origin. It has nothing to do with man. The gospel I preach to you, to you is about the creator. It's from the creator, not the creation. Yes, amen. Verse 12. Same theme. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. I did not receive it. I wasn't, you know, from any man. I, I was not instructed in it as such. But people, you know, but the people who received the gospel before me, they didn't explain that gospel to me at all. But I received it. It came to me. How? By revelation from Jesus Christ. Revelation from Jesus Christ. And here again is another important. Uh, that again I think the Greek just kind of is so neat here actually. And it's hard to translate into English again. Because when we read the English. We just assume Paul wasn't taught the gospel from men. But he was taught from Jesus, right? And people misuse that verse so much because they say Paul never learned anything from man. God taught him everything. So I don't need to learn anything from man. All I need is the Holy Spirit to teach me. And that's not what Paul is trying to say here. That's exactly what he's not trying to say. If you read the Greek, actually, the whole idea of revelation, Jesus is not the subject who does the teaching. Jesus is the object of what the revelation is. There's a difference. And so when you read it, it's a better way to read it to say, I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. And makes a difference, such a big difference, because he's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ because he's, he's referring to, it's a very direct relationship, uh, relationship to what happened to him on the road to Damascus where Jesus Christ was revealed to him. Now, how do you know it's a relationship 
to, he's trying to point to his uh, conversion experience because he talks about it next. So that's why you know it's about him. If you read verse 13, it says uh, he keeps going with that same idea that this was what happened to him at, uh, at, at, at Damascus, on the road to Damascus. And we need to understand this really a little because I'm coming to terms to this a little more because we talk about, we use the phrase Paul was, you know, that's his conversion experience. But we got to think about it. It's not like a Gentile who was converted to Christianity. Okay, that's a different kind of conversion, but it's more about a person who encountered Christ. And this encounter with Christ brings him to the revelation that it's more like the light bulb suddenly goes on. And it's, it's this moment that he has. And he says, here it is. All my life I've been zealous for this. And here it is. This is what I've been zealous for all my whole life. That's the revelation he gets. All of a sudden, man, the light bulb comes on. Ah, yeah, this is it. All my years that I have been seeking God and zealous for this. And he keeps talking about that. Christ revealed in him. And that's what he talks about in a few verses down. And we'll come to that hopefully. Christ revealed in him that he recognizes who Jesus is. It is the one who he has been longing for. Studied so faithful for. Looking forward to. Jesus is the Messiah that he has been waiting for. And that's the revelation he got on that road to Damascus. Paul's conversion needs to be seen in that revelation of Jesus Christ. It's that his conversion moment is that moment he realized. It's that aha moment when he realized that his lifelong expectation has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And it blows his mind away. That's the revelation he got. Come back to that because he talks about it. Verse 13. For you have heard... Of my previous way of life in Judaism, Judaism, whatever. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. And was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You can hear it's really interesting here. Because if you think about it, Paul's issue is what? The gospel that's been corrupted, right? And you'd automatically think that his defense should be about what the real gospel is. But he doesn't go there, really. What he goes to is his own experience. It's kind of interesting that he goes there. Because what Paul wants to tell us, you know, you think he'd tell us about, okay, this gospel that they're preaching is rubbish. This is the real gospel. And you think Paul would get to that. But instead, he actually goes to his own story. His own story. He says, uh, for you have heard my previous way of life. As I was reading this, it just occurred to me. Preach the gospel. Listen to me carefully here. Preach the gospel, but tell your story. Preach the gospel, but tell your story. Because sometimes we just get so caught up with preaching the gospel. And don't get me wrong. Don't dilute it or complicate it or compromise the gospel. But one of the most effective ways to communicate the gospel is when you tell people your story and how your story comes in contact and intertwined with his story. It's a big difference. 
What is your story? What is your story? That's what Paul is getting at here. I intensely... Church, you can preach Christ, and that's great. You can say things, and that's great. That will always bring. But like I'm saying, I'm, this is just what came to me. The most effective way is when you put your story in with that. This is what he did for me. Don't ever compromise the gospel. Don't take the attention away from the gospel. Preach the gospel, but tell your story. How did that gospel change your life? And that's what Paul is getting to pretty soon. What is your story? Let me challenge you here this week. Go home, write your story down. Because then you will understand for once again, get a new love for what God has done for you on the cross. Write your story down when you go home this week. What is your story? He's in... He's going on. He says, what was my story about? Intensely how, you know my story. Of course, he told him about it. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. His story was that he persecuted the church. Why was he persecuting the church? And verse 14 kind of gives us the answer. Advancing. Why was he persecuting the church? Because he was, I was advanced, uh, advancing in Judaism. And passionate about the traditions of my fathers. Now you got to understand this. Paul loves, loved and studied the law more than anybody else around him. That's what he's saying right here. That's his story. He was passionate about that. He knew the law. He knew what the law said. Why was he persecuting the church? Because he was passionate about the law. He knew what the law said. The law said anybody hanging on a tree is cursed. And he's so passionate about the law. And he says, now you have a person who's been cursed by God. And here you have some Jews worshiping a cursed person. That's why he's so passionate about preserving the law. And he says, that's why he's persecuting them. Because he, you know, you're worshiping a cursed person. What's wrong with you? That's not what the law tells us. That's why he's persecuting the church. And the second part here, he also says he's persecuting the church because he was what? Extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. Important to notice again the contrast he's drawing. He has just said, where's this gospel from? Not from man. But what was I passionate about? A tradition that came from my fathers. Man. In his own life. In his old life, if you want to put it that way. He was passionate about the law. And he was passionate about something that came from man. And now he's saying, now I'm passionate about Christ. And I'm passionate about something that comes not from man. He's drawing a contrast there. I was zealous, he says. It's, it's pretty amazing. He's running through his story. As he turns, runs through his story, he says, I used to persecute the church. I was so zealous about the law. I was zealous about preserving the tradition of my fathers. And then that verse, but when God. Yeah. What a powerful statement. What has been? What is? Where is? Do you even remember the story, your story, when you can say, I was doing this, but when God came into my life. But when God revealed himself to me. But when God came in and showed me something else. That's what he's getting at in his story persecuted the church because I was zealous for the law, zealous for human tradition. But when God came in, 
so powerful. Because I can, looking across the room, I can, I can almost guarantee that most of us have had this but when God moment in our lives. I'm sure if I pass the mic around, there'll be a lot of people who can share. Man, this was my life, but when God. That's why it's powerful to tell your story. Tell your story and see how God's story intertwined with your story. And then you didn't live for your story. You lived to fulfill his story for your life. But when God, but when God, and I, I think about, you need to realize, Paul was not a bad guy. Paul was not a bad guy. He was a good guy by every standard of the law back then. I mean, he wasn't a drunkard. He wasn't gambling all his money away. He wasn't cheating people, robbing people, nothing of that sort. But then on the road to Damascus, he has this encounter with Christ. And then all of a sudden, he realizes, man, everything that I've been doing, this is what it's about. And I think, and as I was writing that, the analogy that came into my, my, my mind, and uh, I'll close with this real quick, is about uh, Christmas lights. You know, it's this long string of lights, and Paul is so passionate about this. Okay, think about it this way. Sorry, this is not in the Bible. I'm just using an analogy. He's so passionate about this Christmas lights, he makes sure no one steps on it, no one breaks it, no one cuts it. You know, and he arranges it in, around a Christmas tree. He arranges it along the sides of his walls, between, whatever. He's, all, he's so passionate about it. And someone plugs it in and the light comes on. And all of a sudden he says, whoa, this is what it's all about. Why have we been passionate about the light, the Christmas tree, the string, when the real thing is the light, literally the light comes on in his head, that everything I have longed for, worked for, studied for, and, and just had the zeal for, is found in Jesus Christ. Amen. That's why he's so passionate about the gospel. But when God, verse 15, finish with this. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Realize that word by his grace implies what? Paul was not looking for it. Paul was not seeking it. But when God revealed himself, that's grace. He didn't work for it, that revelation. He didn't expect it. No, he did not expect it. He didn't even look for it. That's what grace is all about. But when God, by his grace, says what? Set me apart from my mother's womb. Called me by his grace. Verse 16, was, was pleased. And that's the best part. I love that part. Because... God was pleased. God is pleased to reveal his son in your life. Amen. It is his work. It's by his grace. There's nothing I do that deserves it. But it, it, it takes him or gives him pleasure when he reveals himself. Hallelujah. Set me apart from my mother's womb. Called me by his grace. Was pleased again to reveal his son in me. Again, think about it. He already has a law and all of a sudden the law comes alive. That's why he said Christ was revealed in me. That's why the previous verse we like to read instead of saying from Jesus Christ, he says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus was revealed to him, what was inside came alive. To reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
got to think about this and you've got, we can't miss this here. Paul, why did he use the word servant? Because he's making an analogy to whom? The prophets that came before him. He's using the word servant. Who among the prophets said the same thing? Before I was in my mother's womb. Jeremiah 1.5. Before I was in my mother's womb, he called me to be a prophet to the nations. Paul knows, you forget, Paul knows everything there is to know about the prophets. That's why he's calling on the authority of the prophets. And he's saying that same call that God gave on the prophets, he has also placed in my life. Isaiah, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. He's drawing imagery from uh, Jeremiah and, and, and Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49 verses 5 and 6. Do you have it up there? Yeah. It says, it's on the screen. But I have labored in vain. Oh, sorry, verse 5, verse 5. Okay. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his, next slide, to be his servant. Same word, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. Keep dropping down to verse 6, and he says, it is too small a thing. Uh, and he says, I, okay, the last part there. I, no, go back. I will, write a second line towards the end. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. We read the Old Testament, but we forget sometimes that this is there, right? And that's exactly what Paul is doing. God's plan. Jeremiah, before he was in his mother's womb, he called him to be a prophet to the nations. Isaiah, while he was still in his mother's womb, what does it say? I will make you a light for the Gentiles. Paul, on that road to Damascus, the encounter you had, did two things. Realize, first of all, it's by his grace that we preach the gospels, but realize this experience revealed to him Two things, that experience he had on the road to Damascus revealed to him who Jesus really was and also commissioned him, his calling to what he was supposed to do, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Man, God's word is so rich and we miss out so much when we run through it. And I have so much more to say, but may Christ be the gospel. Remember, first of all, that you are called to be a high, to a high calling like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Paul. You are called to be the servant, a servant of Christ. Sold out, set apart, only living to please him and not man. Realize, remember, tell your story. There is one gospel. Don't compromise that gospel. There is only one gospel. It has no human. No, one, no human could have ever thought about it. Now while you tell his story, make sure to tell your story too. Because that's what gets people's attention. When your story comes in contact with his story. Tell them your story. Set apart. Remember. For his pleasure and his pleasure alone. So much out here, church. I pray that God will reveal Jesus to you like he did to Paul. It wasn't a one-time, let me say this. 
If you read what it says right there, after that, and we'll get to it next week, he goes away to Arabia for three years, it says. And people think, you know, you know, that's where he learned and studied everything there is to know about Jesus. But that's not what he's saying, because he said, I didn't learn this from man. What he's trying to do there is figure out, man, I believe this. This is a prophetic word. Jesus did this. Check mark. And there he's trying to figure out how a person is supposed to be cursed is now the salvation of the whole world depends on that one person. It takes time for Christ to be really revealed in his life. I pray Christ will be revealed to you and in your life the same way this morning. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we love you. Thank you. Thank you for saving us, God. Let me challenge you, like I said earlier, church. When you go home sometime this week, write your story. And write about the but, when, God moment in your life. Let me tell you why that's important. I want you to think with me about the children of Israel walking through the wilderness 40 years. I don't know how many of you can even remember 40 years. I was... Okay, whatever, but I don't even remember what 40 years ago was for me. Some of you can remember what 40 years ago was. and you, It's a long time. And then they realize that, you realize that 40 years ago, and you see, you realize the people of Israel back there, what did they eat the first day? Manna. What a miracle from God. The first week, it was still a miracle from God. The second week, it was still a miracle from God. But 40 years later, it was no longer a miracle because they had got so used to what God had done that they forget what a miracle it is. That's why I want you to write your story because we have the tendency to forget the miracle of what happened to me. That but God moment in my life. It's easy to forget what God has done for you. I'm not talking about just the blessings. I'm talking about salvation. Write his story. It'll give you a newfound appreciation. or remind you of his faithfulness. Remind you of his goodness. Remind you of the fact that he called you. He inscribed your name in the palm of his hand. And remind you that he loves you and will never leave you or forsake you. Write your story down, church. God, we thank you once again, Lord. Keep working in our hearts, Lord, as we meditate on your word. Speak to us, Lord. Challenge us, Lord. Open our eyes to, to see you in a new way too, Lord. May your word come alive in our hearts. May your word come alive, God. Give us a newfound passion for you. Because without you, Lord, I would be so lost. Without your word, I would really be lost. But God in his grace chose to reveal his son to me. Thank you, Father. We bless your name, God. We worship you, God. Be glorified, Lord, in our lives. Remind us of the calling you have placed on our lives. 
to be servants of God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.